we didn't make it through it, so uh, maybe we should continue and finish it so we get the full benefit. I didn't want to just take excerpts here and there, the highlights. I felt it was more important to read the whole thing and analyze it a little bit. <coughs> so uh, this is as we got down to chapter 13 is as far as we got. They did extend the feast one year, you remember, in order to uh, continue to worship God. So maybe we can extend the feast reading uh, without any problem. There's, there's an awful lot in here that's good for us in the end time church to consider because it's foundational to the thinking of God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever and does not change. So the principles we find here uh, certainly carry over to the New Testament and the New Covenant Church, and much, much, much of the New Testament is almost direct quotes from the Old. So Deuteronomy is a very pivotal book summarizing the history of Israel up until the end of Moses' life. So let's go into chapter 13. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder... now. It does not initially say whether that is a false or a true prophet or dreamer of dreams, but it is interesting that it mentions signs and wonders. So, signs and wonders are not the key test. Remember in the book of Revelation, it talks about the beast and the false prophet and how there will be great signs and wonders given. Uh, Satan is capable of producing incredible signs and wonders and will. So this is something for us to consider knowing that there are righteous signs and wonders and false signs and wonders ahead. And how do you know which is which? Remember even in Moses' own experience, Pharaoh's magicians did signs and wonders. And then Moses through God, or God through Moses, did signs and wonders as well. His eclipsed theirs, but the book of Revelation indicates there are going to be some incredible signs and wonders given that will have a great part in deceiving the whole world. So let's not discount that it can come from either an evil or a righteous source, and he goes on to explain that. So if he gives a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the eternal your God proves you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So a key ingredient, then, is... Does that sign and wonder turn you to the God of creation, or does it cause you to go in another direction? And we have to be able to perceive that. Now, we know also that God says those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I think that's John 4.24. So... The spirit and attitude has a great deal to do with it, with what you see, but also is it the truth? Does it fit the Bible? Does it fit the Word of God? 
So anything we see, even though it might be miraculous, even though it might be impressive, has to fit the doctrine of this book, God's Way, uh, because he is completely bound in his way, and he explains his way to us. So anything that leads us away from the way of God, God himself, we have to be very much aware of. If it leads us into false doctrine, even though somebody might appear as an angel of light, Satan's ministers are transformed as angels of light, so that they appear to be holy, can appear to be righteous, can appear to be godly, and yet if their doctrine betrays that, then they are not of God. False doctrine is very important for us to consider. Now, we saw that recently in Second John, where he said, he said, if they come and bring not this doctrine, do not allow them in your house, neither bid them Godspeed. I think I commented then, we're not to listen to Protestant preachers or Catholic priests or even those who have been a part of the Church of God, so-called, who have departed from some of the doctrines that we find in this book and are either abusing, misusing, twisting, or changing them into something that is non-biblical. I think we have to be even more beware of them in some ways than we do have Methodists and, Prod and Baptists or Church of Christ or Mormons or whoever. Because they do have enough of the truth <clears throat> that it's easier for them to deceive us, perhaps, than someone who does not have the truth. There is where we have to be very careful. And if anyone begins to depart from the doctrines of God, it doesn't matter if they have signs and wonders. Now, we will indeed see signs and wonders in the end-time church of God. Zechariah 3 makes that very, very clear that those who are attached to uh, the end-time work in the gathering will do signs and wonders, or be men of sign and wonder. So those things will happen within the church of God. But be aware, they will also happen out in the world. And if they, are if they in any way begin to pull us away from the true God and true doctrine, then we must be very aware of that, and not listen to that, as the Apostle John tells us. And if you do, you are betraying not only yourself, but you're betraying your brethren. Sometimes God holds the whole accountable for the actions of one. Remember Achan or Korah or some of those. Ananias and Sapphira, uh, he held accountable on their own and did not punish the church. But in some cases, as in Achan's case, what was it, 30,000 people died around missing this, or am I mixing the story up there? But uh, trouble began to come on everyone in several instances in the Old Testament when only one had sinned. We are not islands, brethren. We are all part and parcel with one another. We are a family. We are to be together. We are to support one another, encourage and help one another. And if we see someone who begins to draw us toward false doctrine or wrong teaching or negativity in some form, 
We must avoid that at all costs. I hope we understand that. I hope we can internalize that and control ourselves in those areas. God brought us out here to be apart from the Babylonian system around us, to begin to separate ourselves. He said in Micah 4, even go to Babylon, but out of the cities and out of the middle of it, and get out into the wilderness, the mountains, and the desert place. And we have conformed to that, have done that. And we need to be sure that we remove ourselves as much as we can from the Babylon around us. We have to shop there, we have to work there, uh, and so on, but we need to keep it at a minimum, because it is so easy to be led astray. The key, then, is to worship God with all our heart and all our soul, and not let anyone deter us from that, even if they do seemingly miraculous things. And maybe not seemingly, it can be miraculous things, but it is from a lying standpoint. Excuse me. You shall walk after the eternal your God, and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and you shall serve him, and cleave to him. So he brings it down not to just loving him in the sense of emotion, but also of his laws, his statutes, or his doctrine, his teachings. Uh, So, in the context of prophets, we have to be sure that it is the true God and that it is true teaching with his commandments and teachings. So, cleave to him. Verse 5, And that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken to turn you away from the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust you out of the way which the eternal your God commanded you to walk in. So shall you put the evil away from the midst of you. Now they were to literally, physically kill anyone who began to lead them in any way away from the teachings of God and the personage of God. Now, we are not given that authority. We are not under the administration of death in the new covenant. However, on a spiritual level, we need to understand this. What happens, or happened then, when they physically killed someone who began to teach false doctrine or lead them astray from God? It cut off all contact, didn't it? The dead don't speak, the dead don't know anything, and they don't influence you wrongly. So the spiritual principle here is to kill any contact, to kill any possibility of being led astray from the true God and the true teachings of God. So though you do not kill that person, you kill their influence, you kill their ability to affect you. In other words, you stay away from, you do not allow it in your house, which would mean your physical home, or the temple of your spirit, which is the house of God, your mind. So you don't listen to what they have to say. It is so easy to be led astray. And we have seen 
tens of thousands of people in our own experience who have been led astray by people in the church or supposedly in the church who began to depart from the true God and from the true sayings of this Bible. So we cannot take false doctrine or false teaching lightly and say, well, that's just his opinion and listen anyway. God is telling us, kill it, stop it, don't listen to it, or to that person. That means you have to go on in a spiritual sense as if that person was dead. I, you know, if you meet them on the street, I, that you, I'm sure you could say hi, but don't stop and talk and talk doctrine and talk uh, personalities and talk attitudes because those are the subtle ways that they lead us astray. And it's happened to, I'd say, a majority of the church to this point. Almost half stayed with Worldwide till it became totally Protestant, and then they're either there or gone completely or barely hanging on or whatever. And then little groups have led people into false doctrine. I mean, you know, they come up with things like the day begins at sunrise. Totally unbiblical. And most of us would not maybe swallow that one. But when it comes to a subject like, let's say, the government or the calendar or things of that nature, it's real easy for people to twist things out of context and teach us something that is not godly whatsoever. And God tells us to stay away from them. If they killed them in the Old Testament, that was pretty final. We're not to be around false doctrine. Um... Be put to death, going on in verse 5, because he has spoken to turn you away from the eternal your God, and he's already included the teachings of God above this. You can't turn from the teachings of God without turning from God. If you have false doctrine, then you are not a true Christian, but a false Christian, because God's word is inviolate, and we have to live by every word of it, not most of it, and then keep our own pet doctrines that we like. So he pulls you away from the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, and so on. Now, six, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend, which is your own soul, like David and Jonathan were very close, entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, other doctrines, implied above with the commandments, which you have not known, you nor your fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, near to you, or far off from you, from the one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. Your own family, your own mate, anyone who starts to turn you from truth is included here. You shall not consent to him, nor hearken to him, neither shall your eye pity him, neither shall you spare, neither shall you conceal him, or not tell it, or not rat it out, or whatever terms you might want to use. But you shall surely kill him. 
Your hand shall be first upon him to put him to death. So this is an individual responsibility. If your own brother or sister or mate, no matter who they are, you are the first one to take the stone and throw it. And afterwards the hand of all the people. But you shall surely kill him. And you shall stone him with stones that he die, because he has sought to thrust you away from the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Mitzrium from the house of bondage. We need to understand, brethren, how precious the truth we have is. There are not many people on earth who understand the true doctrines of the Bible. I mean, you start with the very basic things like the Sabbath and holy days and go on to other things like calendar and Passover and and all the things that we have learned from the Bible since we have been here. We need to recognize how precious that is and not let anyone take these things from us. I have seen people who have left here who had supposedly proved the calendar over the years, over the last, since 2000, last 13 years, I've seen them leave here having understood those things, at least to all intents and purposes, and go back to the Jewish calendar. Give up all that they had learned about when to keep God's feast days and where, and go right back into other parts of the church which do not understand those things. How easy it is, for whatever reasons, to begin to water down the things we have learned. I have always told you, don't believe me, believe this book. And if I bring something to you, you had better prove it. And see if that's what this book says. And if it does, follow it and keep it. If it doesn't, reject it. But we people have people who have said they agreed, said they understood it, said they proved it, and then have rejected it and left. I hope that doesn't happen to any more of us. I hope that you prove what you believe and you know it to be true. And personalities and individuals and squabbles and all those things which we will have until Christ returns should not enter into the picture of what the truth is. Interpersonal relationships and difficulties we should be able to handle and be forgiving and loving of each other in order to do that. But when we allow the precious truths of God to be taken away, we are slapping God and Christ in the face. And those who do so, sooner or later, will pay for what they are doing, or what they have done, or where they have gone. Because when you begin to reject the things that God has opened your mind to understand, you begin to lose more and more and more until it just disappears. You have no control of that. Herbert Armstrong understood that. And he said, if you don't follow what you know, what you do have will be taken away. He often used the example of the one man that had apparently a gift of healing. He could anoint people and be healed. 
And then he was introduced to some truths, basic truths of the Bible, and rejected them. And he lost that gift that he had had. I don't remember all the details of it or personalities, but I do remember that story being told many, many times by uh, that man. It can, it can happen to any one of us so very easily. If God in heaven opens your mind, and he's the only one who can, and you cannot understand the truth unless he does, John six forty four. no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So if God has opened your mind, he had to individually do that. He knows you, and he opened your mind specifically. It didn't just happen. So he takes it quite personal if we begin to reject any of the things that he has taught us that are in this book. And we are not to allow anyone whether they be blood family or spiritual family, to draw us away. And if they begin to take us away from the true God, we are to cut them out of our lives. Paul addressed this same issue in 1 Corinthians 6, 7. 7 it is. Where if God opened the mind of one by his Spirit and did not open the mind of the mate, if they did not pull you away from God or what you were learning, but allowed you to follow God with all your heart and did not fight you on it or prevent you or try to keep you from it, then you could dwell with that person. They could still be your mate. But he said, if they will not let you worship God in peace, but keep trying to pull you away from what you believe or opposing you, that you have every right to divorce them, and you will not thereafter be bound to them. That's how seriously he takes it. And he does not take divorce lightly. It is in a very narrow, limited form that he allows that to happen. But in the case of someone who might pull you away from what you believe, or try to and work at you, Get away from them, he says, and follow God. And if you marry again, since you're not bound, bound means unbound, you were to do so only in the church. The spiritual issue is the key to this. Not whether you get along with that person well or not, not whether it's a good marriage or not, but can you worship God within that relationship or not? And that is the only criteria there that allows you to divorce and not be bound to that person. But he makes a stern warning, don't you ever marry anybody outside the truth. Don't put yourself in that position, in other words. And that is a spinoff from what he's saying right here. No matter who it is, do not let them drag you down and pull you from God and his teachings. That is the most important thing in your life. And blood relatives or mate are not more important than that. Now, as humans, sometimes we may think so. But your mate cannot bring you into the kingdom of God. 
Only God can. And we have to put Him absolutely first in our lives, above everyone. And isn't that New Testament, where He says, to follow Christ, we may have to leave father, mother, brother, mate, sons, children. He's just repeating what's said back here. And come and follow Him. In the Old Testament, we kill them. In the New Testament, in some respects, you kind of have to kill the relationship. You can't be around them. They'll drag you down. Verse 11, And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. That is the way it works. If you allow it, if you don't put the stop to it, others will listen, others will pay attention, and before long, everybody has gone downhill. Clamp down on it, stop it, now, like you would stone them with stone. Let others hear and fear. We lock people up in prison, then we parole them sometime later. No. If they murder, if they rape, if they do the things that God says that they were to be stoned for in the Old Testament, then the physical government has every right, because even the United States government is still operating under the terms of the Old Covenant. They are not under the New Covenant, no matter how Christian they might think they are. And they have every right to literally physically do what God's rapists and people in the category of those who would have been stoned, were immediately executed as soon as it was proved that they had committed the crime. Others would hear and fear, and they would not be quite so likely to commit the same crimes. And there would be no repeat offenders. None. The. That's what should be done in this country. America has far more people in prison than any other nation on earth. We're a nation of inmates. That's a sad, shameful thing. Nobody hears and fears anymore. Well, we have, we can't control the nation. It's not our job. The government they have is the government they have. But we can apply the spiritual principle to ourselves here. And we need to be very careful to do that. God does not talk just to hear his lips flap. He means it. <clears throat> Verse 12. If you shall hear say in one of your cities, which the eternal your God has given you to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Baal, Belial, are gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. You shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be truth, and the thing certain that such abomination is worked among you, you shall surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword, and you shall gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shall burn with fire the city and all the spoil thereof, every whit, 
for the eternal your God, and it shall be an heap forever, it shall not be built again. And there shall cleave nothing of the cursed thing to your hand, that the eternal may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion upon you and multiply you as he has sworn to your fathers. When you shall hearken to the voice of the eternal your God to keep all his commandments which I command you this day to do that which is right in the eyes of the eternal your God. Now that's pretty powerful. If a city has men in it that begin to turn God away, then they were obligated to kill every man, woman, and child in that entire city and burn everything, not save anything, gold, silver, cattle, nothing, but burn everything there. Now, is idolatry important to God or what? Is true teachings of this book an important thing? Are, are the true teachings of this book important to God or are they not? Now, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His ideas about true teaching and idolatry and leading anyone from anything in this book and twisting it away from true belief he takes very seriously. Is it any wonder he wants us to review these laws without fail every seven years? Now, we read a lot in between, back and forth through the whole Bible. But this is the very basis of New Testament belief. You are the children of the eternal your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. For you are a holy people to the eternal your God, and the eternal has chosen you to be a particular, it should probably read even in the Hebrew, it means redeemed when he uses this terminology in the New Testament, a redeemed people, redeemed from the world, to himself, and that's the context here. He's redeemed you from the people around and given you the truth. Above all the nations that are upon the earth. Now, what does that mean by not cutting yourself or making baldness between your eyes for the dead? Uh, they had certain pagan rituals they went through which showed them to be of certain belief or certain following or whatever. Things that were ungodly that uh, were a part of idol worship. Now, we don't see that same thing in quite the same way here, even though there are cultures in certain places of the world who express their religious beliefs through their clothing, through their hair, through uh, the way they uh, deform and misuse their bodies and so on. And that culture is taking hold more and more in our country as time goes by. More and more people putting tattoos on uh, that show an ungodly approach. More and more people using all kinds of piercings all over their bodies which indicate... Uh, a drug culture, which is about that far removed from a satanic culture. All kinds of odd and strange things 
uh, people are beginning to do to their bodies that are beyond what God intended. There is a right balance. Now, he decorated his bride with earrings and uh, even a nose jewel and uh, a jewel in the forehead and so on. Uh, the jewel in the forehead in India is part of their religion. So we don't go there for that reason. We need to be very careful. If the world is misusing and abusing something, we need to be careful that we don't go there lest it affect our thinking. But the things that the Bible says we can do, it's okay to do. Just be careful that we don't go into the uh, attitude of rebellion or the attitude of being like the world and be accepted of the world. Do it within the scripture and according to good sense, let's say. And realize we should look different than the world. That's what he says. They, they do certain cuttings and certain hairdos and various things that you can read about. And if we do those things, then we don't look different. We look like them. We shouldn't look like the world. The way they dress, the way they paint themselves is ungodly. And some have had difficulty accepting that within the church. Verse 3, you shall not eat any abominable thing. These are the beasts which you shall eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the hart, the roebuck, the fallow deer, the wild goat, the pygarg, whatever that is, bison is what my margin says, the wild ox, uh, the chamois, I haven't looked that one up what that is, and every beast that parts the hoof and cleaves the cleft into two claws and chews the cud among the beasts, that you shall eat. So whether it be domestic animals or wild animals that you hunt, it's okay as long as they're clean animals. Chew the cud and have a cloven hoof. Uh, nevertheless, these you shall not eat of them that chew the cud or of them that divide the cloven hoof, as the camel, the rabbit, the coney. For they chew the cud but divide not the hoof. Therefore they are unclean to you. So it's got to have both characteristics, not just one. And the swine, because it divides the hoof, yet chews not the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. So stay away from the unclean. Now, that's partially ceremonial about the dead carcass. Uh, we certainly should not eat of them today. Uh, but some of the ceremonial part of it uh, has... Uh, gone to Christ himself as opposed to, the, to these things. These you shall eat of all that are in the waters. All that have fins and scales shall you eat. Thinking back on the, what I just said, who wants to touch a dead pig anyway? <laughs> you know, a dead, unclean animal. Uh, yeah, you might have to bury them or drag them off, but uh, even then, I tell you, I, if I had to do that, I think I'd wrap a something around its leg and drag it off. But uh, the ceremonial part of that, uh, we don't have to worry about. Now, they were allowed to have unclean animals and use their hides. There is a difference. And you had to touch an unclean animal to do that. Uh, they had badger skins on the uh, original uh, tabernacle. Badger's an unclean animal. 
So they had to kill them, they had to skin them, they had to take care of the hides. So they were allowed to touch unclean animals for certain things. This is in the context of food. I think that's an important part to realize here, uh, that it's unclean to eat, so if it dies, don't touch it, Uh, probably in terms of eating it, because we are allowed to touch animals for fur or for decoration or for clothes or whatever. Those things are made very clear. And not just clean animals, but you can use leather from unclean animals. Okay, then moving on. <clears throat> Verse 9, These you shall eat of all that are in the waters, all that have fins and scales shall you eat. And whatsoever has not fins and scales you may not eat, it is unclean to you. So anything that comes out of the water has to have both fins and scales. Uh, people sometimes ask if someone can pass the halibut test. The halibut's very tasty fish, but I've lived in Alaska and I've caught halibut and I've eaten cow halibut up there. But boy, if there's scales on those, they are so fine, they're microscopic. They, they're almost a clean fish and they are a scavenger. So even though the Jews may say they're clean, I'm not too sure. So I, over the last few years, have kind of avoided eating halibut uh, because I'm not sure they're clean. I don't know that. Maybe we need to get a halibut and scrape it real carefully and see if we can find scales. Anyway, verse 11, Of all clean birds you shall eat, but these are they of which you shall not eat, the eagle, the ossifrage, the osprey, the gled, the kite, the vulture, raven, owl, nighthawk, kookaw, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl and the great owl and the swan and the pelican and the gyre eagle and the cormorant and the stork and the heron after her kind and the lapwing and the bat. Anybody into eating bats? I, that doesn't really appeal much. But uh, there are certain characteristics that are here. <clears throat> you name them and you have to go through and see what characteristics each of those birds has in determining what is clean and what is unclean. Um, it's not as easy as chewing the cut or having a cloven hoof or fins and scales. So that takes a little more complication to get into that, and we'll not go there right now. For sake of time, we're just reading the law and commenting, but we could, we could spend two years going through Deuteronomy if we went deeply into each one of these things. Uh, And every creeping thing that flies is unclean to you. You, They shall not be eaten, but of all clean fowls you may eat. 21. You shall not eat of anything that dies of itself. You shall give it to the stranger that is in your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to an alien. For you are an holy people to the eternal your God. So if an animal dies, whether it be of old age or... Uh, looked in the mirror or, and found itself too ugly to live or whether it's diseased or whatever, you're not to eat it if it isn't killed, if it dies of itself. And he did make a difference for the peoples around who were not the called of God. You shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. 
Uh, there's been a lot of debate on what that means over the years. Some believe one thing, some believe another, the Jews and different ones. But uh, some research has shown that sometimes the Canaanites boiled the baby animal in its own mother's milk. Uh, is this for mercy's sake? Even when it comes to uh, birds, God says you could kill, I think it was the mother, no. You could kill the young but not the mother, or was it reversed? Sometimes my mind turns those things around. I'm mentally dyslexic, I guess. Uh, but you couldn't kill the whole flock. You had to allow them to be, mercifully allow them to reproduce again. And here, uh, maybe it is partially that. Why would you, you know, something's unweaned, it's still young, it's still tender, and then you kill it and boil it in its own mother's milk. It just seems like a, a lack of respect entirely for both the mother and the, the baby. <clears throat> or does it mean, as some have thought, that you shouldn't uh, kill it for food until it has been weaned at least? You know, lambs could be certain size when they're weaned, and then they could be edible. So is he saying, don't kill it and have uh, something to eat days after it's born? There's not much there in the first place, but... Some people say, well, it's really tender and nice when it's just been born. Uh, so there could be several different ways that this could be interpreted, and the Bible itself doesn't make it clear. Verse 22, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your seed that the field brings forth year by year. Now, he's introducing a section here about tithing, and he's talking, notice some of the key words in here. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your seed. So this is a full tithe, which means 10%. A tithe is 10%. And you're to do this one year by year. That is, every year. Year by year by year by year. This is to be done. And you shall eat before the Eternal your God in the place which He shall choose to place His name there. So, the tithe that is being introduced here is a full 10% that is done every year, and it can only be consumed in the place which God names. We'll see that it's for the feast, the feasts of God. Where he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of your corn, of your wine, your oil, the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Eternal, your God, always. And if the way be too long for you... Now, he did designate, and I won't go to all the scriptures, he did designate first... Uh, oh, what was the name of the place? Shiloh. And later uh, took that away and designated Jerusalem. And they were to go up to keep the feast at Jerusalem. Now, if the country was large and God had expanded their borders, which he's done with us, and the way was too far, then you could... Uh, well, let's go ahead and read it. So this is not something you were normally to consume within your own gates. This is something that you were to take this full tithe every year and take it to the place that God would choose and eat before the eternal there. 
When the eternal your God has blessed you, if it's too far, you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and shall go to the place which the eternal your God shall choose. So you have the option. If you live near Jerusalem, uh, you could haul your tithe of your corn and your wine and your and drive your cattle there and eat of them and make use of them there. But if it was too far, and it would take months maybe, let's say, to, to get your stuff to Jerusalem, then you could just simply sell it, turn it into money, and take it with you. If you live in New York and the feast is here, uh, you would say, well, most of us aren't in that sense in agriculture as much anyway, but your salary, you save 10% of it, and that's to go to the place that God has designated and worship before him. Now, what do you do with that money? Verse 26, And you shall bestow that money for whatsoever your soul desires, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, or for whatsoever your soul desires, and you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Now, we know that the holy days, the feasts of God through the year, picture the plan and the purpose of God for mankind and wind up picturing the millennium and the great white throne judgment, uh, where the bulk of our second tithe is spent, uh, representing a time of peace and plenty and prosperity on the earth. So God has us save 10% of our income to keep his holy days so that we have plenty uh, of money to spend on whatsoever our soul might desire. That's, of course, within the clean and unclean laws and that type of thing. Uh, Godly things, in other words, we can spend it on. And rejoice, you and your household. And it is to extend to others the Levite that is within your gates. You shall not forsake him, for he has no part in inheritance with you. Uh, So that's what we in the church have termed second tithe. There is another tithe mentioned in the first one, and he says it is his tithe, his 10%. Uh, I'll not go there right now. I've done sermons on it before. But that one, you were to take that full 10% at tithe, and he said, I have said that I will give my tithe, God speaking, to the Levite. So they were to give one-tenth of the money to the administration of the priesthood or the Levite in that day, and even designated the high priest and the others and so on and what they would get. So it's, And it does say give it all. Now, if you give all of that tithe to the administration of government, and it says you give all of this to yourself to take where God has put his name and to spend it there, uh, all of this goes there, so that's separate. Then all of this goes here, and that's separate. Some try to say, well, this is all just one that you split three ways. But when it talks about God's tithe, it says give it all to the priests. Here it says take all of it every year and keep it and use it to eat at the feast. If it's too far, sell it, and then go buy the same things you would have had anyway, if you're a farmer. Then it mentions something different in uh, 
Let's see, where am I here? Verse 28. At the end of three years, you shall bring forth all the tithe of your increase the same year and lay it up within your gates. Now, this has to be talking about something different than what we have been reading about to this point. Because it said year by year on the one, and that it was to be taken to the feasts and used there so that you could have plenty and prosperity there. So every year, all of it, that tithe. Now this one, it says at the end of three years, you shall bring forth all of the tithe of your increase the same year and shall lay it up within your gates. So you don't take it to the feast, you lay it up within your gates. You don't give it to the priest, it's a totally different tithe. And tithe still means 10%. So it's every third year. So he tells you what to do with it. Lay it up within your gates, and the Levite, because he has no partner inheritance with you, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within your gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that the Eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So this one is designated only every third year. And what is done with it is also designated. You keep it within your gates and you take care of those who have need there. And he gives the categories of those that uh, are eligible for it. So let's not go further into that at this point, but just by carefully reading the context and the actual words that are there, you can see that there is a difference. And then he goes on in verse chapter 15, at the end of every seven years, you shall make a release. Now, when you put this story all together, uh, you keep the God's tithe every year, you keep the second or the festival tithe every year, you keep the third tithe for the widow, the orphan, the Levite, the stranger, and so on, every third year. So the third and the sixth years, you do that, and then you have a seventh year, which is a year of release. So God has a tithing cycle there of the third year, the sixth year, and then a year that is a year of release and doesn't count in the cycle. And he mentions that right after he talks about this uh, third or poor tithe, as you might say, or those who have need tithe. We call it first, second, and third just to make it simple to know which one you're talking about. Because you could call it ABC or you could call it God's tithe, festival tithe, uh, tithe for the needy. You could designate it different ways. Uh, we just call it first, second, and third for ease of reference. At the end of every seven years, you shall make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that uh, lends ought to his neighbor, or anything to his neighbor, shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the eternal's release. So every seventh year, we are to forgive personal debts that people may owe us, and just write them off the books. Because there are poor people who would not be able to make those payments, or not be able to ever get it done. So, uh, we are to be merciful if we are the person who is owed, and every seven years forgive those debts. 
And if you owe someone, you should make every attempt to pay it, but expect to be forgiven during the year of release. Uh, This was to be done, let's see, verse 3, of a foreigner you may exact it again, but that which is yours with your brother, your hand shall release. So if somebody out in the world owes you, uh, you can retain that debt, but if it's a church member, you are required to turn it loose. Now he makes an exception, verse 4, Save or accept when there shall be no poor among you, for the Eternal shall greatly bless you in the land which the Eternal your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it. I would argue in some respects we have no poor among us. Now some of you feel kind of poor, and we're in a situation where we've entered a society that has our wages are like a a hole in our pants, as Haggai points out. Your, your pockets won't hold it. It's just gone. Uh, there are people that, have, that you owe it to or bills you have to pay, and by the time you get the check in your hand, it's already gone. So we don't, in that sense, have everything we'd like to have. And yet, on the other hand, compared to the truly poor people on earth, uh, there are very, very four, few poor people in America by comparison. Uh, we eat every day, almost, like it was the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of our brethren in Kenya this year didn't eat on the last great day. They had eaten all they had and had no more. They're poor. I think we all ate very well on the last great day. So uh, that kicker is in there. Verse 5, Only if you carefully hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God to observe all these commandments which I command you this day. For the Eternal your God blesses you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Nationally, we forgot this. We are trillions of dollars in debt. We owe the Chinese over a trillion, the Japanese over a trillion. Other nations, we owe that money. Just a few decades ago, we owed nothing, and others owed us. We were lending, we were giving foreign aid, various things, to nations all over the world. We were still in that circumstance of blessing that God had given since he let us come back to this country in 1607 and thereafter. But recently, we have gone into such deep debt that there is no way ever possible we could pay it back. We are the greatest debtor nation on earth. That is an abomination before God. But we've done it to ourselves because of greed, lust, and bad government. But the government only reflects the people. We're a nation in debt who cannot control our emotions. We have to have what we want when we want it. So we are that way on the individual level. 
And Americans have lots of credit cards, and they owe for cars and houses and Twinkies and clothes and vacations and you name it. If we want it, we buy it, whether we can afford it or not. We do not control our appetites as a nation. And then we blame the government. No, the government's just doing the same thing we do on an individual basis, that's all. We are in debt and they are in debt. And God says we're not to do that. We're to make every effort to get out of debt and stay out of debt and not be indebted. He wants us to be in a position to lend, not to borrow. And we need to work toward that because that's what he would have of the nation. And since he's not getting it from the nation, he expects it from his called out ones. That we would be the ones who do obey God and do put ourselves in the right position. It is so easy to follow the way of the culture around us. If I want it, I get it, whether I can afford it or not. And God's way would be, don't get it until you can afford it. Not go into debt and stay in debt. I don't know whether that's entirely possible with houses and cars. It certainly is with other personal debt. And it would be nice if we could get that way with houses and cars even. I think most of us out here now own our houses, such as they be. (laughs) They're not McMansions for sure, but for the most part we own them. They're free and clear. So God has given us an opportunity and chance to live up to these things as best we can. And things will get better. The, The better we handle it, the more we try to follow this, the more God is ultimately going to bless us and we're going to be in a position of having the wealth that he would like us to have. He is going to give that. He's the one, he says, who gives us the ability to make wealth. Where did I read that the other day? So he's going to do that if we obey him and serve him. He's going to return the blessings that physical Israel, our nation around us, has turned from God and has gone into debt. And he is going to bless those who will serve and do things right. We need to turn our thinking around if we're still thinking like the world and going into debt for this, that, and the other thing. And then can't seem to keep it up and keep paid up. We need to be very, very careful. Understand that we're in a situation where inflation is occurring all around us. Other people are in debt. And it is easy to go there. They make it so simple to go there. And we need to guard against it and follow these principles of God. Now, when the currency is being debased and and inflation is roaring, which it is, it makes it even more difficult. So we need to understand the circumstance in which we live and be very, very prudent, very careful, so that we can obey God and not go against this. So if he intended it for the nation, he intends it for the individual as well. 
He wants us to be in a good, sound financial position. And sometimes we have to say no to ourselves in order to accomplish that. Uh, there are a lot of things we spend money on that are in excess uh, of how much we should eat, or how much we should drink, or how new the car should be, or how this, or how that. What quality of clothes we wear. And you say, well, I barely get by, and I buy my clothes at the thrift store, and, and I scrimp on this and scrimp on that. Well, that's true. But even within that, we need to try to be careful and prudent and manage wisely and budget. Some people, you know, they get money and then it's just gone. Because they want this, they want that, they want something else, and it's got to be new and it's got to be the best, or it's got to be the top of the line, not the bottom of the line. You can't get it at the used store. It's got to come from the, you know, on and on it goes. That's our culture and our human nature. But let's work toward, I'm not saying we all have to be there by next week, let's work toward getting ourselves in as good and strong a financial position as we can get ourselves so that we are not servant to the lender. We become slaves to the central bankers and the bankers and those who take interest from us uh, to keep us poor. And they do. So we are to stay in a position of being a lender instead of a borrower. And you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. We'll get to the blessings and cursings chapter here when we get that far. And it says that in the end, we will disobey God, and we will become subject to the lenders, and they will get themselves high above us. And we will go down and back into captivity as a nation. And we're right on the edge of it as we sit here today. Number seven, if there be among you a poor man of one of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the eternal your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall open your hand wide to him and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wants. So he does tell us to be generous, to take care of those who have need, and he's even designed a law, the third tithe law, to take care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger and those who are poor among us. Uh, So he wants that taken care of. So he put it as part of the system, not just entirely up to us, but a part of the commanded system. And we are to be generous and helpful in giving as we have position to do so. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be stupid either, as I've said before, because even though Paul was generous and gathered things up and provided for the needy and the poor in Jerusalem during a drought and sent fruit from Spain and so on, uh, he is also the one who said, if you don't work, you don't eat. Don't feed anybody who is unwilling to work. <clears throat> so you, what you're doing is harming their character. If they're willing to work, provide for themselves, then they still have needs. Help them. But if they're unwilling to take care of themselves for whatever reason or whatever excuse, 
Then it says, do not feed them so that they might overcome their laziness or their attitude or their welfare mentality or whatever it is they've got and go out and start providing for themselves. God makes that very, very clear throughout the Bible. So yes, we're to be generous and help where help is needed, but we are not to help those who will not help themselves. If they help themselves, and for whatever reason they still fall short, then they come under what he's saying right here. But you shall open your hand wide to him, and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in what he wants. Verse 9, Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the eternal against you, and it be sin to you. So he says, don't be conniving, don't be calculating. If somebody truly has a, a legitimate need, let's put it that way, a legitimate need and you're about to go into the seventh year, you take care of his legitimate need anyway. You don't say, well, man, I've I got to forgive him here in two months, <laughs> and he gets off scot-free, so I'm not going to help him. No, he says, don't think that way. That's selfish, and it is being ungodly. I mean, if the, if the need is legitimate, you take care of it, and you give, even if you know you're never going to get it back. That's a good rule of thumb in any case. When you loan something to somebody, you might as well kiss it goodbye. Uh, most of us have experienced that with relatives and friends. If they come asking to borrow, don't loan it unless you're emotionally prepared to lose it, or financially prepared to lose it. Some people are honorable, and some people are not honorable. Some people say, I'll pay you back, but they won't. And you need to understand that before you do give, that it may be... You know, some people don't know what they, what, what they mean when they say, I want to borrow this. They haven't looked up the definition of borrow in the dictionary. So when they borrow it, they mean... I want you to give that to me. That's not a, it's not a proper definition. Let's understand English. <laughs> if they say, give it to me, and you give it, then you gave it. If they say, I want to borrow that, that means that they should be thinking, I'm going to pay that back, and I, as a person of honor, will fulfill my obligation to pay it back. That's borrowing. <clears throat> Verse 10, you shall surely give him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give him. You're to do it cheerfully, uh, helpfully. In other words, God loves a cheerful giver, whether we're talking about offerings and, and his tithes and so on. But when we are helping someone, it is to be with the spirit of love and willingness to help, not grievous to us out of our selfish heart. Because that for this thing, the eternal your God shall bless you in all your works and all that you put your hand to do. So if we're willing to serve, to give, to help, to be generous, uh, then God will bless us in that. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Now he does say he'll bless us in, uh, in verse 6. Uh, 
and that we're to be in a good, sound financial position. And he says in verse 4, if there be no poor among you, and maybe in the millennium that will indeed be the case. Uh, but in most circumstances there will always be a certain amount of poor people who may have true disabilities or true mental illnesses or something uh, about them that causes them to be unable to take care of themselves. And we will always have some of those and we need to be prepared to be helpful to them under those circumstances. If they are able-bodied or for because of their own uh, misuse of their bodies uh, or lazy or whatever, that's an entirely different matter that Scripture addresses differently. But there will always generally be a few poor around who have a legitimate reason, not an excuse. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the poor, and to the needy in your land. And if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold to you and serve you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So even slavery was only allowed for a six-year period. Uh, slavery was allowed. They could take people of other nations and make slaves of them. And we found even in the New Testament that you had slave and master relationships, and Paul gave scripture as to how to regulate that. And as a Christian, <clears throat> if you had a slave master... Uh, you treated him with honor and respect, whether he was a good or a bad person. And they even had people in the church who had slaves. So it's not necessarily always contrary to God's law uh, to do that. He allowed it, <clears throat> and even within the New Testament church in limited parameters. Anyway, it could only be uh, for six years, in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him out free from you, you shall not let him go away empty. You shall furnish him li uh, liberally out of your flock and out of your floor, out of your wine press. Of that wherewith the eternal your God has blessed you, shall you give him. Uh, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Mitzrayim, and the eternal your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. So, even though he allowed someone to be, let's say, an indentured servant or technically a slave, they were to be treated with respect, and when their time of work for you, which was a period of one to six years, when they left, they were to go away with plenty. So it was almost like an employee in that sense, as opposed to a slave that you just used, misused, abused, and then tossed. God said, if you're going to have uh, someone who was a is a bondman to you, remember that's what you were, <coughs> and how they laid it on you in the land of Mitzrayim and made your life miserable. Don't do that. Uh, 16, and it shall be, if he say to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you and your house, because he is well with you. In other words, if you treat that person who actually you own, bought at a market or whatever, and you treat them the way you ought to treat them, it may be 
that they love you and love your family and love their situation enough that they don't want to leave. And if you have that type of servant, I would think it would be incumbent upon you to try to treat that person in such a way that they might not want to leave. If they choose to do so anyway because they want their total freedom, that's fine. But we, as Christians, should treat anyone in our employ in a manner and such that they would not want to leave. So if they decide they want to stay with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever, and also to your maidservant you shall do likewise. So if they decided they wanted to stay with you, then it, they didn't have an option later on. You took their ear and you put it up against the door, and you drove a hole in it with an awl. And that denoted permanence. <coughs> Now, where do we fit there as slaves of Christ? He tells us in the New Testament that we're bond slaves of Christ. That we have committed ourselves to Him. And we have said, I don't ever want to go away. We have come to a knowledge of His truth. And then we are baptized. And in so doing, we're saying we want to be with you forevermore. So he gives us his spirit. He gives us his blessings of knowledge and understanding, even physical blessings in this life also. And if we don't have family, he gives us this family to learn to love and get to know. So he blesses us. And he expects us then to stay with his house and with him forevermore. And if we fulfill that properly, he says he will even marry us. Marry a slave. So it does have a New Testament application. Christ being the slave owner. And we are bond slaves to him. Bonded to him. And it is forever. So it's as if. Don't physically do it. That's not part of the baptism process that... As soon as you come out of the water, we stand you up against the door and drive a rod through your ear. Uh, we don't do that. But the meaning is the same spiritually. Verse 18, It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant to you in serving you six years, and the eternal your God shall bless you in all that you do. So, take care of servants, and Christ is bound then to take care of us, isn't he? If we're good servants and serve faithfully, then he will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. But we have to do good and be faithful servants before he will say that. He won't say it just to cover our sin or our laziness or whatever it might be, spiritually speaking, or Laodiceanism. If we're laid a sin, he doesn't say, well done, you good and faithful servant. He spews us out of his mouth. But if we serve him wholeheartedly, then he's going to say that to us and accept us into his kingdom. Then it will be forevermore. Verse 19, all the firstling males that come out of the herd and of the flock, you shall sanctify to the eternal your God. 
You shall not you shall do no work with the firstling of your bullock, nor shear the firstling of your sheep. So the firstborn uh, of an animal were for a special use. You shall eat it before the eternal your God, year by year, in the place which the eternal shall choose you and your household. So the firstling was a part of the second tithe in that sense, that you took to the feast and ate there. And if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind or have an ill blemish, you shall not sacrifice it to the eternal your God. So they, they did have animal sacrifices at the feast. And God does not want us to sacrifice that which is diseased or ill or, or whatever. In other words, he wants us to be holy and acceptable to him. And if we come wanting to be in the kingdom of God, and we are spotted with the world and spiritually crippled and not wearing holy garments, we're not going to be allowed in. So he set these physical ramifications upon them. And now we have the spiritual parameters to consider. Verse 22, if it's blemished or something of that nature, you shall eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person shall eat it alike, as the roebuck and as the hart. So eat it like you would a deer or a moose or an elk or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's blemished, whether a person is clean or unclean. In that sense, it's, it was there to be eaten, but not taken to the feast and offered to God. Uh, verse 23, Only you shall not eat the blood thereof, you shall pour it upon the ground as water. Life is in the blood, as he explains in another place, and we're not to eat blood, but pour it out uh, as a... Uh, a notice or a respect for the life that was there that God created. You can use the animal, but don't do the blood because that's where the life is. Without blood, you don't have life. Okay, I've gone probably a little over time actually, so let's stop there and pick it up again.